I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, March 23rd, 2011. We're going to be doing our light edition of Fighting for the Faith today, because I'm working on other things. Wait till tomorrow's sermon review. That's going to be a loser. But I'll save that for tomorrow. Mm-mm. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and uh, we like to compare them to what the Bible actually teaches. Now, uh, one of the things we do here at Fighting for the Faith is on a weekly basis on the day of my choosing. It used to be Friday, but I never was consistent with that. So uh, once a week, we do a light edition of Fighting for the Faith, and that is we pick a singular topic, and I try to find a good lecture uh, worth passing along to you. And uh, and uh, th- this week is no different than any other week. I've got a fantastic lecture. It's actually from a lecture series recently delivered by Ken Samples at uh, Christ Reformed Church at their Academy Lectures there in Anaheim, California. And the name of this uh, lecture is entitled Salvation by Grace, and it's part of the series that he recently did on Christianity's Magnificent Seven Apologetic Truths, Dangerous But Good. Now, if you remember, we did the historic Christianity Seven Dangerous Ideas but he, uh, <clears throat> the uh, weird thing about that particular series is that there was only one, two, three, four, five uh, dangerous ideas that were mentioned in these seven uh, dangerous ideas. So uh, <laughs> we, he never did get around to six and seven. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to play these lectures completely out of order. I, I I'll probably be referring back to these because I like Ken Samples and I think he does a fantastic job. Eddie has a book coming out on this on this topic. And so I thought it'd be worth passing along to you. So today's lecture is entitled Salvation by Grace. Here is Ken Samples. Okay, well, welcome to everybody. Uh, We're going to talk about one more of what I'm calling Christianity's Magnificent Seven Apologetic Truths. 
And uh, this takes us to number five. We're going to look at the doctrine of grace. You might uh, be curious why I would uh, mention salvation by grace as an apologetic truth. But I think you will see that when you start comparing the Christian view of salvation to the view of salvation in other religions, it immediately makes Christianity distinct. And it's a powerful reason for believing in the truth of Christianity. So let's have a brief prayer. Father, we ask your blessing upon our time of study and reflection. Help us to more uh, to have a greater appreciation for grace, for salvation that, that you sent to us in your Son and is applied to our life through your Spirit. And so we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's begin uh, in my new book manuscript, which I'm happy to say is only a couple of weeks away from going to Baker Books, which is always an exciting thing for an author. It'll be more exciting when I see it in print. But the title of it is Historic Christianity, Seven Dangerous Ideas, uh, out, due to be out in the spring of 2012. And in that manuscript, I write about what I call the dangerous but good apologetics implications of the doctrine of salvation by grace. So let's briefly examine how the religion of Islam explains how people are either accepted or rejected by Allah in the afterlife. After that, we'll see the powerful contrast found in historic Christianity. So that's my point. Um, we don't typically think about the gospel being an apologetic argument, but when we compare it with the other religions of the world, which have no grace, uh, it becomes a very powerful and persuasive uh, tool. So Islam is a religion of submissive obedience. Um, to be a Muslim is to submit one's life. So let's kind of unpackage the Islam perspective. Uh, estimated to be the fastest growing religion in the world, and I need to qualify that, that doesn't mean that there aren't certain elements of Christianity that may not be growing faster. There was a time in which the Pentecostal charismatic branches of Christendom were probably growing even faster than Islam. But in terms of the world's religions, I think it's fair to say Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. It considers itself the, the only straight path to God. That's the way they like to describe their religion, the straight path to God. At the center of the Islamic religion is the belief that there is one and only one God. The single sovereign and personal God, Allah, which is a generic name for God. So if you were a... Palestinian Christian or you were an Iranian Christian living in the Middle East and you were to call upon God, you would say Allah. It's a generic term, uh, but in Islam obviously has a very specific application. So Allah is said to have uniquely revealed his will to humankind through the prophet Muhammad. And Muhammad's dates are very uh, clear. We know that when he was born and when he died, 570 A.D. and died in 632 A.D. The specific content of this proposed divine revelation was set forth in the holy book known as the Quran, sometimes spelled uh, with the anglicized or English or Western K, but uh, Muslim sources spell it with a Q. It calls all people everywhere to worship the one true God, the creator and judge of humanity, considered supreme over all. So he is... Uh, the sovereign ruler of the universe. 
People, therefore, need to submit their lives to Allah's expressed will. And uh, here are a couple of very popular symbols of Islam, the crescent moon and the cross, uh, excuse me, the crescent moon and the star is uh, essentially the symbol of Islam. And of course, uh, the buildings you see there in the background uh, reflect uh, Arabic architecture and Islamic emphasis. The Arabic term Islam incorporates the meanings of peace and surrender. Uh, the religion of Islam teaches that human beings will only find true peace both in this life and in the hereafter by surrendering their wills to the will of Allah. So uh, Islam is Arabic for peace and you are to surrender your life and will uh, to Allah. The word Muslim means one who submits his life and seeks to follow the proclaimed straight path of God. Islam, similar to modern Judaism, is a religion that stresses what an individual practices more than what he believes, placing emphasis upon devotion over doctrine and law over theology. What I like to say is that Christianity emphasizes orthodoxy. Islam emphasizes orthopraxy. And I think that this is an area in which Islam and Judaism are more in common than they are with Christianity. Because if you're a Jew, do you, do you keep kosher? Uh, if you're a Muslim, do you follow the five pillars? It's about the way you live. It's about your actions more than your beliefs. That's not to say that Jews and Muslims don't have important beliefs, but uh, orthopraxy over orthodoxy. Now consider the second largest religion in the world after Christianity. Islam has approximately 1.5 billion adherents worldwide, with the claimed 50 countries in the world having an Islamic majority. Christianity would be about 2.2 billion. The basis of divine judgment in Islam comes from the view that human beings are fully responsible for their actions and God is an all-knowing and, com and completely just. So now we get down to how are you accepted in Islam? How is Islam's either acceptance or rejection of people, how is it uh, compared to Christianity? This belief system, Islam, rejects the idea of original or inherited sin and instead teaches that human beings are born good, not neutral. They're not born sinful. They're born good. Self-discipline and divine guidance make them capable of living lives morally acceptable to God. So you're not a sinner. You don't need a savior. You need a prophet. You need a guide. You need someone to call you back to the ways of God. Muslims do not believe, as historic Christians do, that sin is a state of being. Rather, they insist that sin is merely the result of willful disobedience. In Islam, humans are limited. They're weak and generally forgetful of spiritual realities, but they're not fallen sinners trapped in sin. So these passages in the Old Testament where David says, I was conceived in iniquity, or the Pauline passages of the New Testament where it talks about human beings being slaves to sin, Muslims believe none of that. Allah, though spoken of as, a merc as merciful in the Quran, does not offer redemption to mankind but rather fair and impartial justice. An introductory article on the website Islam.com notes the following. Quote, Islam believes that each person is born pure. Now, why people who are born pure would get into jumbo jets, 
and incinerate thousands of people in a single morning, I don't know. But according to Islam, people are born pure. The Holy Quran tells us that God has given human beings a choice between good and evil and to seek God's pleasure through faith, prayer, and charity. Unquote. Though claiming to be heirs of the biblical tradition, Islam is clearly not a religion of grace and redemption. Muslims believe that paradise is a just reward and hell is a rightful punishment. So in Islam, they argue that the Bible used to teach all of this stuff, but the Jews and the Christians corrupted the Bible. Uh, the Bible would originally would have taught that if you're a good person, if you follow the ways of Allah, he'll accept you. If you don't, you'll be rejected. So uh, paradise is a just reward. Hell is a rightful punishment. No grace. For Muslims, Judgment Day, or the Day of Reckoning as they call it, is a future cataclysmic event whose time is known only to Allah. According to Islam, this day will begin with the sound of a trumpet. There you see biblical imagery. Followed by a general resurrection of the dead. More biblical imagery. All people will appear before God with their actions perfectly recorded in the book of deeds. This also reflects uh, biblical ideas. It is, it is a common Islamic belief that two angels will follow each Muslim throughout their life. The angel on the person's right records the good deeds, while the angel on the person's left his bad deeds. A Muslim's destiny rests upon the preponderance of his actions as measured on a scale. So at the end of, the t at the end of time, each human person are going to have the preponderance of their deeds placed on a scale or their deeds placed on a scale. If the preponderance of deeds are good, then you'll enter into paradise. And uh, angels and uh, maidens will usher you in. If uh, the preponderance of your deeds are bad, then you will be punished in hell. Generally speaking, Muslims have no assurance that they will earn paradise. But this dilemma often is understood as an incentive to strive for greater submission to Allah's laws and requirements. I don't buy that for a minute. Um, I think that lacking assurance in the Christian life can be very difficult. I would imagine it would only be even more difficult to be a Muslim in that situation. Paradise involves both spiritual and physical pleasures, often described in sensual terms for men, whereas hell consists of eternal banishment from Allah's presence, accompanied by despair and physical punishment. Of course, we could explore whether any of this is moral. Why does God promise uh, men sexual pleasures uh, in the afterlife uh, to avoid sinful acts here in this life? Uh, that doesn't seem coherent, doesn't seem morally sound, but trying to reflect Islam and let Islam speak for itself. While this judgment seems based solely upon a human being's actions, Muslims also believe that Allah can co-sign people to paradise or hell based upon his sovereign and arbitrary will. So even after the judgment, even after the preponderance of your deeds are graded on a scale, if Allah wants to put you in hell, he can. And the opposite is true. He could change the destiny of a person to paradise, uh, or as Muslims like to say, as Allah wills. Islam.com states the following regarding what Muslims believe concerning the afterlife. 
Again, quote, they believe that life after death is not a new phenomenon in that all its manifestations will be reflections of what one does in this life. They believe that each soul will be held accountable for what he has done or for what it has done and that God will punish and reward accordingly. They believe life as we now know it is only transitory and that life after death is a permanent state. Close quote. Thus, the second largest religion in the world clearly affirms that paradise is a reward for moral goodness expressed in this life and that hell is a punishment for lacking sufficient ethical accomplishment. Here is, of course, one of those grand mosques, this one in Istanbul, Turkey. Um, Turkey tends to be one of the more moderate Islamic countries in the world. Uh, Turkey has been a part of NATO for more than 50 years. And uh, this reflects very ancient uh, Islamic architecture. Notice the four towers, or actually the five of them. Uh, that's reflect, a reflection of, uh, and there may be one behind it. So uh, that's very reflective. Uh, also, the, the, uh, the, the dome tops are very reflective. I believe this one is called the Blue Mosque. Now, let me shift gears at this point. Uh, so I think we've well established the idea that in Islam, there's no grace. There's no salvation. Uh, heaven is something you get as a reward. And if you end up in hell, that's what you earned. I'd now like to look at what I would call the so-called spiritual man on the streets view. The idea that heaven is reserved for people who try to live good, decent, and just moral lives, and hell set aside only for the worst people, is an extremely common belief today. Too often people who have some connection with Christianity nevertheless believe this to be true. I think far too many Christian people think that heaven is for really good people and hell is for the monsters. Moreover, as we suggested above, many people who are not part of any institutionalized religion, but nonetheless view themselves as, quote, spiritual, whatever that means, people strongly hold this view as well. Again, that the good people go to heaven, the bad people go to hell, and that most of us are in the middle, and uh, we're not as good as Mother Teresa, but we're not as bad as Adolf Hitler, so we're gonna, God's going to grade on a curve. Lots of people apparently think that God will grade on a curve and cut the decent folks among us some serious slack when it comes to the question of entering heaven or hell. Now, why is that? Well, because it's thought that most people at their core are good and decent people. In other words, if their, if their life's deeds were placed on a scale, the preponderance of those actions would weigh on the side of goodness. Thus, the common conviction, this is the man on the street, is that human beings are basically good. The flip side of this popular sentiment concerning human nature is that hell is only reserved for the truly evil people. That would include mass murderers and criminals like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy. And of course, th these are some pretty bad boys. Uh, Hitler it was responsible for millions of deaths. Uh, Stalin even more and uh, Mao even more than Hitler and Stalin. Um, Manson, Dahmer, and Bundy, of course, were criminals 
uh, that have a lot of blood on their hands. And, of course, here is uh, the infamous three here, Manson, Dahmer, and Bundy, uh, all of them uh, cold-blooded murderers. Uh, and so a lot of people think these are the only kinds of people that will go to hell. These evil monsters are commonly thought to be the clear exceptions to the general rule concerning humankind's basic moral goodness. So most of us are good. It's just the bad people out there that really deserve hell. The common man on the street apparently thinks that most people are clearly not as kind and compassionate as Mother Teresa was. But clearly they're not as evil as Adolf Hitler was either. Therefore, the consensus drawn is that the vast majority of people in the are in the moral middle. They will get a passing score on God's graded curve. The, the moral middle is the way I think a lot of people think who uh, are spiritual, on the, on the street spiritual. In summary, then, this common conviction is that heaven is a reward for being a fairly decent person and hell is a punishment for being a truly terrible human being. And here's some of the man-on-the-street expressions about heaven and hell. Quote, God helps those who help themselves, unquote. Quote, God grades on, grades on a curve, unquote. God knows I'm only human. I'm trying my best. God will understand. Only the truly bad people go to hell. Don't worry, it's a dry heat. I like that one. Um, if I go to hell, I'll just play cards with my friends. How many of you have heard that one, by the way? Very common uh, kind of snickering idea. Uh, here is uh, three famous skeptical writers who talk actually quite a bit about heaven and hell, although none of them believed in, in either uh, destiny. Mark Twain said, quote, go to heaven for the climate, hell for the company. Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous uh, German atheist who said God is dead, said, quote, in heaven, all the interesting people are missing. All the interesting people are missing. And then Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous French atheist, the existentialist, said, hell is other people, quote, unquote. Well, here's uh, three different uh, thinkers. Uh, Twain, the famous American writer. Uh, in the middle, Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher. And then Jean-Paul Sartre, the existential French thinker who died in 1980. Well, let's talk about bad news and good news. Yet it is at this very point of much of the world's common consensus that God views humankind as being basically good, and therefore worthy of heaven, that historic Christianity's dangerous gospel idea comes to bear. This message brings with it both profound bad news as well as profound good news for humankind. Uh, the word dangerous in philosophy and uh, in science, and sometimes even in theology, means an idea that turns the paradigm upside down. Uh, Darwin's idea was a dangerous idea, that we evolved from animal life rather than being the direct creations of God. Uh, a dangerous idea means something that challenges what most people believe. Well, what I'm saying to you tonight is I think the gospel is a dangerous idea because it goes against what many of us, if not most of us, think. And that is that, you know, I'm in the moral middle. God's going to accept me. It's only the monsters that go to hell. No, I'm not as good as Mother Teresa, but God grades on a curve. Well, the gospel is a dangerous idea because it goes against that common belief. 
For according to historic Christianity, in the eyes of God, no one by their own merit stands morally acceptable. God is, after all, a morally perfect being. In fact, it is fair to say that sin or moral transgression is a much bigger problem than most people realize, and that often includes even what many Christians think. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that if you don't love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, then you are sinning. And could I admit before you tonight that that means a good bit of my life doesn't meet up to God's standard. God has much higher standards, and that's bad news. The gospel, however, is the good news. But the good news, the gospel, is that God's grace is deeper, and Jesus Christ is a much greater Savior than most people realize, and that also includes what Christians often think as well. Isn't it interesting that we're probably much more sinful than we recognize, and Christ is also much greater Savior than we probably ever recognize. For according to the biblically derived faith expressed in historic Christianity, salvation is not achieved through human moral merit. Rather, salvation is the free gift of a loving and forgiving God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is a free gift. It's a gratuity from the same Latin, gratia, grace. Scripture certainly does teach that God will indeed judge humanity in the eschaton, uh, Greek for the last, the last day or the final day. Uh, no doubt about that. But God's word also teaches that all those who, by grace, embrace the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, will escape the wrath of God, receive forgiveness for all their sins, and enjoy God's loving presence forever. This is taught in the Old Testament, implicitly, much more explicitly in the New Testament. And so Christians talk about Christ, the Lord, the Savior, and uh, Christos is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah. And so this is an ancient symbol of Christianity, the first two letters in the title Christ. The key and the row represent Christ. So let's explore this idea of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Why is it a dangerous idea? Because most people don't believe it. It's almost counterintuitive. Most people on the street probably agree more with religions like Islam and Zoroastrianism, where there's a God that's going to put your works on a scale. Christianity is a dangerous idea because most people don't believe it. And uh, it's an apologetic because uh, it will persuade you to adopt Christianity. Christianity is the only faith that believes in salvation by grace through faith. Christianity at, at, at its heart is a religion not of self-help. That's Pelagianism. Christianity had to reject the Pelagian. Christianity is not a religion of self-help. It's not a 12-step program. I don't have anything against 12-step programs. There are people in life that need a whole lot of help. So I don't, have, I don't want to belittle uh, those kinds of things. But Christianity is not a self-help program but it is a religion of divine rescue. 
According to the gospel, what human beings most need is not moral guidance. There's never a bad thing to get moral guidance, but that's not what human beings most need. What they most need is a savior. In fact, the central message of the New Testament is that God the Son has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue sinful human beings from God the Father's just wrath. Thus, the gospel reveals that man is saved by God, the Father. Uh, Excuse me. Thus, the gospel reveals that man is saved by God, the Son, from God, the Father, through God, the Spirit. The triune God accomplishes the whole salvation process. And so, why is the Trinity important? Well, just the simple reason that there's no gospel without it. Because the Father initiates the process. The Son accomplishes it. And the Holy Spirit applies it. So we're, we're saved by God the Son, from God the Father's just wrath, and that's through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. That salvation is provided specifically through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. To use a play on words, the cross of Christ is the crux of Christianity. The cross of Christ is the crux of Christianity. The play, of course, is that the Latin word crux in English means the crucial point, but in Latin it means cross. If you say, well, what's the most crucial point? Uh, That really implies a Christian idea. The most crucial point of our faith is the cross, which in Latin is the crux. So the crux of Christianity is the cross. Now, because this idea is so misunderstood and because so much of the world believes that God's going to grade on a curve, I think it's important to talk a little bit about sin because when we see how sinful we are, we see how wonderful the gospel is. In the Reformed tradition, we like to talk about law and gospel. The law tells us how we have not met God's law, how we have failed, the transgressions that we've committed, but then the gospel tells us the good news that salvation is not something we earn. It's something we receive through faith in Christ. So in Scripture, sin is committed primarily against God, thinking of Psalm 51, 2 through 4, though it is also committed against human beings as well. The Bible uses a number of Hebrew and Greek terms to describe the various aspects and shades of sin. I'm just going to talk a little bit about this. However, the most prominent terms are the Hebrew hata and the Greek hamartia, both of which generally describe sin as missing the mark set by God, going astray from God, and actively rebelling against God. We miss the mark, we go astray, we rebel. That's right at the heart of the biblical teaching about sin. This willful departure from God on the part of man, uh, I guess today we'd also have to say and woman, often takes the specific form of violating God's expressed command. Thus, sin is usually defined in terms of violating or transgressing God's law. And, of course, you see numerous passages there from Romans and James and 1 John in particular. Because the moral law revealed in Scripture is the extension of God's holy and righteous character, to break God's law is a direct affront to God himself. In light of this, sin might rightly be defined as anything, including actions, attitude, and nature that is contrary to the moral character and commands of God. 
Other ways of referring to sin include unrighteousness, godlessness, and lawlessness. So a simple way of thinking about sin is it's anything contrary to the character of Almighty God. And again, that would, uh, that would include actions, attitudes, and a sinful nature. Here's a passage again from Psalm 51. King David uh, knew a lot about sin. Uh, he was still a man after God's own heart, which is uh, in itself uh, a gracious uh, component. David said, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, he had many wives and concubines. But he took a woman that was married to uh, one of the men in his uh, military uh, regime. David says, after he's caught in this sin, he says, quote, wash away all my iniquity in a prayer to God and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proven right when you speak and justified when you judge. There's a couple passages from the New Testament that speak of sin and it's uh, it's monumental effect. Paul in Romans 8, 7 says, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And in 1 John 3, 4, John says, Everyone who sin breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. The ESV study Bible, uh, our church has shifted to the ESV. I find that very hard because I grew up as a Christian reading and memorizing the, the New International Version, or the NIV. But the ESV has a lot of helpful notes. And here it has uh, ten biblical terms for sin. One, disobedience. Two, evil. Three, iniquity. Four, lawlessness. Five, transgression. Six, trespass. Seven, ungodliness. Eight, unholy. Nine, unrighteous. And ten, wickedness. I think that tells you a great deal. The Bible has a lot of different words for sin. That's because there are many shades of it within the human heart. There's a few more passages. These relate to original sin. That means sin is not something that we have acquired by action. It's something that is built into us. And in a Reformed uh, and a Reformation context, we would talk about total depravity meaning that our entire being has been impacted by sin. Again, Psalm 51, King David, Surely I have been a sinner from birth. From birth? Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. First he mentions birth, then he mentions conception. I wonder from a scientific, biological, genetic point of view, I wonder if we couldn't argue based upon David's statement here that sin has impacted us at the level of our DNA, at the core of our physical being. Psalm 58.3, even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they're wayward and speak lies. seems that these Old Testament passages clearly connect sin to the core of our being. Uh, right from birth, if not conception. Romans 5.12 mentions original sin. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, 
and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Um, Generally speaking, Christians have understood this to mean that Adam is either our federal representative, just like President Obama is our fed, the federal leader of our country. And uh, if a country went to war with Obama, they would be at war with the United States. Uh, so it, it's possible to think of Adam as our federal representative. And therefore, just as the president of the United States represents America, to be at war with the president is to be at war with America. Uh, if Adam sins, then he represents humanity. But there is another way of thinking about it. Uh, Augustine used to talk about a more organic sense, and that is we were in the loins of Adam, and so we sin in him. That's a very literal way of thinking about it. Uh, those are two ways of thinking about our connection to Adam. Now, we also talk about personal sin. These are choices and actions that humans engage in. Proverbs 29 asks a very good question, and I think uh, there's only one right answer. Who can say, I've kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin? Can any human being say that? Well, the God-man, Jesus Christ, could say that. But besides him, I don't think anyone can answer in the affirmative. First uh, John 1.8. Okay, going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. And when we come back, we'll continue with this lecture on Salvation by Grace by uh, Ken Samples. If you have anything you would like to say in response to what you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, 
You're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. You think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. No mixing of any of our works into the equation. To do that is to, well, lose the whole gospel. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount or make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box. 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's continue with the balance of this lecture by Ken Samples on Salvation by Grace. Here we go. We claim to be without sin. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Ecclesiastes 7.20 talks about the extent of sin. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is all bad news. The Bible talks about a much deeper extent of sin, a much bigger problem of sin than Muslims and Zoroastrians and spiritual people on the street would ever consider. Matthew 15.19, Jesus says, for out of the heart, the Greek word is cardia, the core of who you really are, out of your heart, uh, come evil thoughts, 
murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So if we did somewhat of a summary, um, again using the biblical word for sin, hamartia or hamartiology in this context, we can say the definition of sin is anything contrary to the moral character and commands of God. So anything that contradicts God's character and his commands, that's sinful. The origin of sin is found in the the volitional will of the creature. It comes out of Lucifer. It comes out of Adam. Types, there is both original sin that we're born with and there is personal sin that we willfully choose to do or to refrain from. The effects of sin, they alienate us. It's alienation from God. It's physical and spiritual death. The extent, it's universal, total depravity. That doesn't mean you're as evil as you can be. It doesn't mean that you're Charles Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer or Adolf Hitler. But what it does mean is that sin has impacted our our entire being, our minds, our heart, our will. All of us, the way we are. The nature, the fallen human nature, is held in bondage to sin. Uh, Some of my favorite paintings come from the medieval and Renaissance period. Here is a painting by Masaccio entitled The Banishment from the Garden. Take a look at the faces of Eve and Adam there. Uh, What I like about this is uh, I think that probably reflects the reality of the situation. Imagine what Adam and Eve must have thought when they came to the realization all of the implications of sinning and being cast away from God. Powerful painting. Well, we talked about the bad news, talked about the law, we've talked about sin. Let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about divine grace. God in his infinite love and compassion. That's not something Allah has has provided a way of salvation for sinful human beings. That way comes exclusively through Jesus Christ. I'm thinking of John 14:6 and Acts 4:12. Salvation can be attained by repenting, turning away from one's sins, and believing, having confident trust that Jesus Christ is the divine Messiah, that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for one's sins, and that he rose bodily from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, is uh, an ancient creed. Paul here, when he talks about uh, the resurrection, is uh, citing a a creed. And it existed not very long after Jesus' death and resurrection. It goes back to the primitive church. Salvation is a direct and exclusive gift of God's grace, unmerited kindness, apprehended through faith alone and totally on the account of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Christianity's truly dangerous idea. It's dangerous because most people don't believe it. It's dangerous because it can turn your whole world upside down. It's, it's dangerous but good. There are dangerous but bad ideas. Uh, I think that was Darwin's idea. There are dangerous but good ideas, and that's the gospel. So Christianity's truly dangerous idea 
stands at odds with all the other religions of the world and with so-called spiritual consensus of humanity is that salvation is a total and utter gift. It's a gift. The New Testament explicitly teaches that salvation is not earned by human moral effort, but rather is a divinely imparted presence or endowment. You get Christmas gifts. The ultimate Christmas gift is Jesus coming in the flesh to take away your sin. In the following passage, the Apostle Paul summarizes the gracious, can I call it the formula of salvation? It's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Paul says, quote, for it is by grace you have been saved. Past tense, been saved. It's been accomplished. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is a very simple statement. It's a, it's a formula. It is a summary, if you will. We're saved by grace. It's through faith. It's accomplished by Christ, but it is always accompanied with a life of, of faithful, uh, loving God. And so good works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. And so it's passages like this that caused a dangerous thing to happen to the church. The church went through a reformation. The dangerous idea of the gospel not only changes society, but it at times has to call the church back to radical changes. And so these statements reflect the ideas of the reformation, that scripture is the supreme authority, that salvation is solely by grace, through faith alone, only in Christ. And all of this is to the glory of God. So let's explore this critical soteriological passage by outlining and explaining the key doctrinal elements of this Pauline summary of salvation. When I was first a Christian, I'd see the word Pauline, and I thought, is that Paul's girlfriend? Who's Pauline? Well, uh, it begins, by grace you've been saved. The New Testament Greek word for grace is charis. Uh, the gifts of the charisma, the gifts of grace. Grace then refers to the kindness and unmerited favor and forgiving love of God. It's God's kindness to us. It's something we can't earn. We can't merit it. It's his favor. He freely gives us this. He gives us his forgiving love. Theologian Thomas Oden, who's my favorite Wesleyan theologian, uh, notes that the New Testament word for grace can be, quote, variously nuanced as graciousness, forgiving, favor, help, benefaction, and act of goodwill, a sign of favor. The word charis, grace, is, is nuanced in various ways. It's deep. It's rich. 
Thus, it is by God's favor and power that secures salvation. This undeserved blessing is then freely bestowed upon human beings. God's grace then stands as the true abiding and undeserved cause of human salvation. And the grammar of this verse clearly indicates that salvation is an objectively completed act. Thus, you have been, past tense, saved. Not that you hope to be saved. Not that you uh, will be saved if you do enough good works, but you've been saved by trusting in Christ. Through faith, Paul says, the principal words for faith in the New Testament are pistuo, the verb, and pistis, the noun. Faith can be defined as confident trust and reliance upon the person of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Trust and reliance upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. Faith is then the means or the instrument through which salvation is obtained. So the cause is grace, but the means is faith. God's grace in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection has accomplished salvation, and it is through faith that a person is made right with God. Grace is then the cause, and faith is then the means. Of salvation. So it's not your faith that saves you. It's grace that saves you through faith. And this, Paul says, is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Contextually, does the phrase beginning with and this refer to faith or grace? When Paul says and this is not of yourself, does he mean the faith or the grace? Which then is to be understood as being not of yourselves? Well, the grammar of the passage clearly suggests that it is best to understand, to mean that the entire grace through faith process of salvation is not a human accomplishment. Therefore, even the human contribution of faith, while a necessary task, is nevertheless a gift of God. Romans 10:17. Human faith is not meritorious in salvation. Uh, theologian Benjamin Warfield explains, quote, It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power res- resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. That's a powerful statement. It's not... Even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. It's not our faith that saves us. It's Christ that saves us through the means of faith. And faith, like grace, is a gift. Can't, can't earn any of it. Can't, you can't take credit for it. It's a gift. It's a present from God. Not by works, Paul says, so that no one can boast. Paul doesn't, uh, Paul doesn't let us off the hook about living a good life. But not by works, so that no one can boast. Because salvation is uniquely the gift of God, no human effort or merit can rightly contribute to it. If human works accomplish salvation, then human beings would be the ones to receive the glory. The Catholic Church, which is a church that teaches many good things and is a very powerful institution and uh, does many good things in the world. 
But as I understand the Catholic teaching about salvation is that one is justified by the grace that comes through the sacraments of the church. And you then put your faith in Christ and the sacramental grace enables you to do that. So your grace enables you. But then salvation is completed or one is justified through works of loving obedience. So you are saved by grace, and it is through faith. It is a sacramental grace, and it comes through faith, but it's completed by good works. Well, I would say then that you deserve part of the credit. You and God have got the job done. I don't think that's what Paul teaches. And if human works combined with grace contribute to salvation, then God would have to share some of the glory with human beings. But the totally solia gratia, Latin grace alone, nature of salvation, rules out all human boasting. Paul then says, we're we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's nothing wrong with good works. They are, after all, good. But they don't save us. Their fruit, not the root. The Greek behind the English word workmanship carries with it the idea that the life of the saved person in Christ is a divine, quote, work of art. Thus, good works are not the basis of salvation. Rather, they're the inevitable result or consequence of saving grace. In other words, human good works are the fruit, not the root of salvation. Or as the German reformer Martin Luther declared, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone, unquote. Luther added that saving faith is always, quote, pregnant with good works. The Apostle Paul confirms the very idea in one of his other New Testament letters, noting that grace naturally produces saving, quote, faith expressing itself through love, unquote. And so good works are the fruit of salvation. They are important. Um, We should seek after a life that is pleasing to God. We ought to live lives that are pleasing to God. But that is the fruit of salvation. That is what flows from saving grace and faith. And so salvation is by grace. This is seen in Romans 3, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, among many other places. And it's not by works, seen in Romans 3, Galatians 2, Galatians 5, among many other places. Now, uh, what we find is that salvation is, as Luther called it, a great exchange. And what what I find very interesting about this is, this is an ancient bookkeeping analogy. This is a bookkeeping analogy. I don't often associate the gospel with a bookkeeping analogy, but that's exactly what it is. Justification is a metaphor of how people would keep the books. How many of you have a debit card, by the way? Well, that's a bookkeeping element. The New Testament uses an ancient bookkeeping analogy in describing how Jesus Christ saves sinners imputing or crediting something, debit or credit, to another's account. The sinner's debt 
account, guilt, is charged to Christ's account. So my guilt is put on his account. Kind of like my uh, my uh, bank account, I put money in my kids' bank account and they spend it. So their job is to spend it. My job is to put the money in there so they can spend it. Well, the sinner, debt account, guilt is charged to Christ's account. Christ's credit account, righteousness, is charged to the believer's account. A bookkeeping analogy. He gets our debt, we get his righteousness. Through faith in Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, believers receive a double benefit. One, in a negative sense, believers are acquitted or pardoned of all their sin before God because Christ took their sin and guilt upon himself. Two, in a positive sense, the believer's account before God is credited with Christ's perfect law-keeping righteousness. It is an amazing thing. It's a hard thing to take in. It's a hard thing to comprehend. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then God looks at you at this moment as if you had never sinned. Because you have the benefit of Christ's righteousness. And Christ has taken away our negative sin. Salvation is a very simple concept. It is, in justification, a very simple bookkeeping presentation. But it is an idea that is very foreign to us intuitively, and I don't think most people in the world believe it. And so it's a dangerous idea. It turns the categories upside down. And so we're not saved by faith. We're saved by Christ through faith. And even faith is a gift. And so Christians for centuries have referred to Jesus as the kurios, the Lord, or the soter, the Savior. The key row, the first two letters in the title, Christos, which is the Greek equivalent again of the Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah. And of course, Jesus is also called the Alpha and the Omega. The, the first letter in the Greek alphabet, Alpha, the last letter in the Greek alphabet, Omega. Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Well, let me stop there and tell you that next week, God willing, we will talk about uh, the sixth magnificent apologetic uh, out of the seven. And we'll talk about the image of God, which is also a dangerous idea. Um, when Darwin came along, People stopped being, having a sacred humanness. Uh, we often as Christians talk about the sanctity of human life. Darwin came along and said, humans are not, are not, uh, they have no inner dignity. Uh, they don't have a sanctity. They're just highly evolved animals. So next week we'll, we'll talk about that. And, uh, I have, a a blog that I write called Reflections and a podcast that I give uh, on a weekly basis called Straight Thinking. Well, let me stop there. We covered a lot. Uh, in fact, today I had a very busy day. I did my taxes, number one. Number two, I did, a, did my PowerPoint, which is 100 slides, and then I mowed the front lawn. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe God could create the universe in six 24-hour days. Look at all I accomplished in 
in just, you know, eight or ten hours. So uh, let me stop there and let, let's see if anybody has a question or maybe a comment. And I'd be happy to, to field that before we close up here this evening. Any questions? Any comments? Anybody would like to make? Yes. Yes. Um, let me repeat, just kind of summarize what you said for people listening to the, the tape. Uh, there have been people who've read Ephesians 2.8 and have differed with the, the interpretation I gave this evening. The interpretation I gave this evening is the best way of understanding uh, Ephesians 2.8 is that when Paul says, and this is not of yourselves, what is not of yourself is the whole process, grace through faith. Uh, and so you've raised the question in some discussions with a friend. He suggested that it refers to faith rather than grace, or is it grace rather than faith. It refers to grace instead of faith. So grace is not of yourself, but the implication then would be that faith must be your contribution. And your comment is that even just looking at the English text, that obviously grace is not of yourself. Uh, that's kind of the, that's where you begin. Of course, grace by its very definition means not of yourself. So it would be redundant for Paul to say, well, grace is not of yourself. You, and of course, notice in the English that it's after through faith that he says not of yourself. So that in a English way is closer it's closer to faith than it is to grace. So just looking at the English, I would agree with you. Now, if you want to, if you want some analysis of this in looking at kind of the context for the Greek, and it's, and this source is not terribly difficult to kind of work through, even if you don't uh, have a lot of depth in New Testament Greek. Uh, Anthony Hukuma has a book entitled Saved by Grace. Uh, Hukum is one of my favorite theologians. Um, I think because he was also an apologist. He was, wrote, wrote a number of books on non-Christian cults. But this book is entitled Saved by Grace. And he has a, a detailed discussion of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And he argues that uh, according to Greek grammar, the best way of understanding it is when Paul says, this is not of yourselves, he's talking about this whole process by grace through faith. Grace is a given, but it, even faith is a gift. And so I think when you look at Romans 10:17, that clearly and explicitly teaches that faith is a gift. So to argue that salvation is by grace, God does that, but faith is our role, well, I would agree we freely believe it is our faith. The Holy Spirit is not believing for us, but even faith is a gift of grace. So uh, Romans 10.17 talks about uh, faith being a gift. And so uh, I think both in English and Greek, the, the, the way in which this passage makes the most sense is it's the whole process is uh, not of ourselves. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't personally and willfully believe. We do. But God enables us to willfully believe. Uh, and uh, that is, I think, the central teaching of the Bible, 
when it comes to salvation, that it, that it is a gift of grace. And again, what I want to reiterate is, and, I, and I'm sure for many of you, this is all old hat. Of course, you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what I'm reminding you of tonight is, that's a very dangerous idea. It is unheard of by many people. Uh, can I again remind you to the early part of my talk, most people think, that there are really bad people and there are really good people. And then there's the moral middle. And the moral middle is where most of us are, and we can hope to go to heaven because God will grade on a curve. That's what I think lots of people believe. That's what Islam believes. That's what the Zoroastrian religion believes. That's what the people at the bus stop on the corner believe. But to say that we are all worthy of God's wrath, but this God has forgiven us, that's a dangerous idea because it turns our way of thinking completely upside down. And it is a powerful apologetic because nobody believes that but historic Christianity. And it's powerfully persuasive. When I first came to the realization that this was true, it turned my life upside down. And even as a Christian, I have to keep reminding myself, if, if you don't mind me, this might sound a bit immodest, but my favorite chapter of this book is this chapter. Not because I'm a good writer. Uh, I think I'm a pretty average writer overall. I like this chapter because I need to be reminded again and again and again and again that I'm saved by grace. And I need to be reminded that good works are important, but they flow from a life of faith. They don't produce a life of faith. Um, I don't mind telling you there are times in my more insecure moments where I'm very tempted to begin believing that God only loves me on the days in which I'm very spiritual, which aren't many. And that is a trap. And so what I like about this chapter is the gospel is seen as a dangerous idea, and I need to be reminded of it. And I think all, all of us do. So I agree with you. I think your reasoning is sound, and I think you can see it in English, and I think it becomes even clearer when we look at the Greek contextual elements. So very good. Nice, nicely said on your part. Anybody else? Question, comment? Yes, sir. Sometimes the compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I'm glad you raised that. Uh, I'm looking here for a particular slide. Uh, you're right. Uh, in many of the many of the uh, chapters within the Quran, I think all of them but one, it begins with that very expression, uh, Allah the. Uh, the compassionate one, the, the merciful one, the just and the merciful, the, the just and the compassionate, uh, the bismillah is what it is called uh, in the Quran. Um, however, my concern about it is this, that they, it seems like just words. And what I mean by that is, we're not sinners. 
I mean, Islam is the antithesis of the Christian perspective. We're not sinners. We, we're not, we, have no, we have no sin, no original sin. What we suffer from is uh, a lack of attention. We, are, we need guidance and direction. We're, we're forgetful. Um, and so we need some kind of prophetic voice to call us back. Uh, of course, Muslims don't believe Jesus died on the cross. There was some misdirection caused by God. Uh, and so God, Allah, would never allow him, one of his prophets like Jesus to die in uh, a criminal's death. And so maybe Judas Iscariot or Simon the Cyrene was put on the cross. And so there's no... We're not sinners. We don't need a savior. And Christ didn't die on the cross. Uh, that's the essence of the Christian faith that they deny. Now, let's be very specific, however. If heaven or paradise is an earned reward and hell a just punishment, what's the place of, of compassion and mercy? I, I guess you could say that God could just damn everybody in hell just from the standpoint of anybody that made any mistake, maybe he, maybe they mean by compassionate and merciful that maybe he's patient. But I, I think the problem even runs deeper, and, and, and that is when you read the Quran, the Quran is an interesting but difficult book to understand. It has no chronology that seems to make much sense. It's not written with a historical chronology. It's not written uh, with a context. It moves from long to short. And the big problem that I see here is that Allah expresses his will, but he never reveals his character or his nature or his person. Even Muhammad gets it mediated through the angel Gabriel. And so there's nothing in the new, and there's nothing in the Quran like the Old and New Testament where Yahweh or Jesus really begins to unfold who God is, his person and his character and his nature. You don't get any of that in the Quran. You get Allah's will, and then you're told that he's compassionate and he's merciful, but it doesn't connect when you begin to look at the theology. And so uh, there's a couple of Islamic scholars that I know, and I'd like to develop that with them a little bit and to see if they can help me to, maybe they can correct me. Maybe there is a, an element of compassion and mercy that I'm not seeing, but it's difficult for me to conclude anything other than he's an unknowable God. You get words about him, but you don't get him. Whereas that's so fundamentally different to the New Testament where Jesus, to, Jesus says to see me is to see Yahweh. To know me is to know God. Uh, God comes in human flesh. There's nothing like that in Islam. Uh, again, I'd like some Islamic scholars to correct me if they think that I'm wrong. I don't want to misrepresent the Islamic faith, but... I, I, I think having read the Quran and having read the way they speak about him, these are difficult questions. I don't know what compassionate and merciful really means. 
And so, to me, that's a big problem. I, I think, I think Muslims have an unknowable God. I think they'd like to have a personal, loving, caring, forgiving God, but I don't see it in the Quran. And so, to me, that's a big objection. I, I think, uh, I think Jews and Christians can speak of God being a loving God, being a compassionate God. Uh, in the Old Testament, it says in the Minor Prophets that Yahweh, he knows where all the widows are. He knows all the orphans. These are the people he has special compassion toward. And in the New Testament, Jesus unpackages the heart of God even more. But yeah, I... I know those very passages that you mentioned, and and to me, I'm uh, they 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 I'm not sure how to make sense of them, uh, given what I think the Quran ultimately teaches. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, the the, the question for those listening to the tape is about Zoroastrianism and uh, its influence. Uh, interestingly enough. Zoroastrianism is a very tiny religion. Um, probably the largest number of, of uh, Zoroastrians either live in Iran or in India. Um, however, you can go to a Zoroastrian temple here in Orange County. Um, I teach a, a comparative religions course at Biola University, and I have them as a final project. They have to go and interview somebody who holds a different religion that we've studied. Zoroastrianism, of course, believes in one god. Uh, that god is called Ahura Mazda. Uh, the Parsi religion, which is also a, a name that is used, sometimes associated with the Iranian uh, Zoroastrians, but uh, they believe that there's one god, so they're monotheistic, but they believe a lot the way Islam does. In fact, Zoroastrianism was the dominant religion of the Middle East before the coming of, of Islam. And uh, they have a lot of the same imagery. When you die, your soul stays with the body for three days. And then you start walking across a bridge called the Shinvat Bridge. And uh, if God puts, Ahura Mazda puts your deeds on a scale... And if the preponderance of deeds is bad, you walk on the bridge and it starts to shake. And uh, hell is below you and heaven is in front of you. And uh, an old hag, I know that's a, not a proper word to use, but it's their word, not mine. An old hag shoves you off the bridge into hell. Uh, now, if the preponderance of your deeds on the scale is good, then you get to navigate across the bridge and maidens come and lead you there. And Zoroaster, the prophet, actually ushers you in. It's very, very similar uh, to Islam. Um, it's hard to know exactly how Zoroastrian beliefs have influenced Judaism, uh, Christianity, and, and uh, Islam. I think they've influenced more Islam. I don't think any. I, I don't think any of the leading biblical figures probably ever had any contact with Zoroastrian people, but Muhammad, Muhammad's job before he became a prophet, 
is he would lead caravans across the Arabian desert. Uh, that's how he made his living. He was born and uh, his mother died very early and so did his father. So he was raised by his uncle and, um, you know, he had to work very hard taking camels across the desert. And it is believed, and I think rightfully so, that he bumped into Jews, to Christians, and to Parsi, uh, Zoroastrian. So he probably had some ideas of monotheism based upon these brief encounters. What's interesting, however, is it appears that the Christians he bumped into were those of the Nestorian perspective who said that Christ only had one nature, that did not believe that he was both God and man. So he probably encountered a heretical version of Christianity, and that may have shaped the way he thought about Christianity. Because uh, in the Quran it says the Trinity is the Father, Son, and Virgin Mary. So that there were people who believed that. He may have picked that up and put it in the Quran. My view is that Muhammad probably, I think he had a real religious experience. I'm not sure it was who he thought it was. But I also think he had a very fertile imagination. So part of it was probably his experience, this counterfeit experience that he had, and then his own creative ideas. But Zoroastrianism is a very profound religion. They tend to be... Uh, they tend to be people who have very strong work ethics. They tend to be very moral people. They tend to be wealthy people because they believe that, you know, leading a good, successful life is part of that. And you can go on Zoroastrianism.com and read all about it. Uh, there is a Zoroastrian temple here in Orange County. There's a, there's a, a larger group in Los Angeles, but there might be a total of, uh, 150,000 in the world. So if you bump into one, you're, you're lucky. But, uh, yeah, very interesting religion. Uh, I, in this chapter, I put a bunch of things on Zoroastrianism, and my editor said, it's too long, let's use Islam rather than Zoroastrianism. But I find the Parsi religion very interesting. I want to take a field trip over to their temple, because I'd like, I'd like to go in and see the, they have a fire temple. And... Uh, I think it's just really, really interesting. You know, we're very, very fortunate. We live at one of the most diverse places in the world. We have more ethnic groups. We have, we have more religious groups. We have more cultures here in the kind of L.A., Orange County area. I mean, there's every kind of perspective is represented here. And uh, it's one thing to read about a religion in a book. It's another thing to go talk to them. That's why I require all my students in my class, they have to go interview a Muslim scholar or a Zoroastrian scholar uh, or a Jewish rabbi or a Buddhist monk uh, or a Hindu scholar because then you, you actually get to talk. And that, I think, really cements kind of your education. So Zoroastrianism.com, you can, you can read all about it. Is there a reform.com? I know there's a reform.org. Is there a Luther, Lutheran.com? Okay, we'll have to check on that. We need, we, we need some good reformation.com uh, sources. Well, let's have a brief word of prayer and we'll close up this evening. Heavenly Father, uh, 
what can we say? We, we have been given this great gift. We owe you everything. Uh, that love and compassion. Lord, you know all about us. You know all about our secret sins. You know about all of the dark places of our heart and mind and soul that you forgive us and you love us. And so we praise you because we know that, Father, you initiated salvation. You sent your son into the world and your son has accomplished salvation through his death on the cross. And the Holy Spirit gives us faith and brings us the new birth. And so we gratefully praise you this evening, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Great lecture, good stuff. I just wanted to pass that along because I wanted to put it into your bailiwick so that you can uh, chew on it, meditate on it, uh, and uh, have that uh, wonderful gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, be reinforced and reiterated in your mind, and hopefully even in uh, Ken Sample's careful and measured way of laying out the doctrine, you learn something that you didn't already know. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>